welcome to the Women in Archaeology podcast, a podcast about, for, and by women in the field. My name is Chelsea Slotten, and I'll be your host for the episode. On today's episode, we'll be chatting with Dr. Tanya Perez about her research on the archaeology of food and the role food plays in creating community. This is particularly timely given the holiday season and the separation we're all facing due to COVID-19. Completing the group today is Emily Long and Kirsten Lopez. Thanks so much for being here, everybody. Happy to be here. Thanks for having us. Yes, thank you. And this is definitely one of my favorite topics. I love food. (laughs) Don't we all? (laughs) I love what people do. (laughs) Um, So, Tanya, before uh, we jump into the the meaty bits of the conversations, can you just give our listeners like a real quick overview of who you are and what your research interests are? Yeah, hi. Thanks again for having me. So, my name is Tanya Paris, and I'm an associate professor at Florida State University which is located in the capital of Florida, the city of Tallahassee. Um, My general interests are in human-animal relationships, but uh, of course, as we all know, those take many, many forms. And so um, I mainly focus on animals as subsistence um, with Mm -hmm. some forays into animals uh, as uh, representatives of native worldview or, or people's worldviews. Um, but in terms of subsistence, I'm, I've specialized in zooarchaeology. So I analyzed animal remains from archaeological sites. And I thought it was cute that you said the meaty bit of the podcast, because <laughs> I do like to, to research about meat, even though I don't eat meat, which is uh, interesting. Um, but lately, in the, for the last, I don't know, not quite 10 years, I've been um, delving deeper into humans and their relationships with food. And so that kind of falls under the subject of foodways and foodways archaeology and how um, people relate to their food in ways that aren't always articulated. So even, you know, how we prepare our food and uh, the kinds of dishes or culinary tools we might use when we're cooking our food and how we serve it and who eats certain foods, who doesn't eat certain foods uh, based on social and cultural norms. So that's really kind of the trajectory of, of where my research has been going. And my main areas currently of where I work are in the southeastern U.S. Um, I have a longtime research interest in the state of Tennessee. And more recently, I've returned to my home state of Florida. And I've been working on um, sites from the Spanish colonial period where Appalachian Indians and Spaniards coexisted in mission communi- Catholic mission communities. So... I've been really interested in how foodways played a huge role in the Spanish colonization of the area. Sounds super fascinating. And I think this is a thing that kind of everyone can get involved with, particularly around the holiday season when we think, you know, in the U.S. about Thanksgiving um, and then all the religious holidays and the new year that happened in December. You know, we have these meals, these dishes that we like to make. I actually woke up at six o'clock this morning so that I could special order some Norwegian um, potato flatbreads to make a dish that my family makes once a year at Christmas. Very cool. Uh, so we all have these these like strong cultural connections to the food that we eat and the traditions that they symbolize, right? And the memories that are kind of tied up in, in all of these different things. So when I think about that, guys, I've like with your potato flatbreads and then um, Tanya, you're talking about like your sites and the overlay of these different types of foods at the Spanish colonial period. It kind of makes me wonder. So if we're looking at 
our time frame and you know in these holiday big events we'd have like a very specific period maybe in the archaeological record where it's like all of a sudden there's a ton of turkey how would you see then at a site in florida like would you be is it easier to tell like everyday food ways or is it easier to tell like these big events like christmas so that's a great question right that's something that that archaeologists are so keen to figure out, um, you know, what are what are the daily meals? What do those look like, and and are they truly different from special meals? Because, like you said, for you know American Thanksgiving, we eat a lot of turkey. There's a huge increase in the amount of turkey being consumed, and then of course discarded um, on this one day of the year. So, do we see that uh, at other sites? People think sometimes they can see that, you know, it falls under the rubric of feasting, which has become a very popular topic in archaeology over the last couple of decades, mm-hmm. to the point where um, there has been some kind of pushback on events being interpreted as feasting events without a more critical analysis, I think, of the data and the context. Because so much of what we see as archaeologists are, these deposits are are um, not single events, right? It's, it's Mm-hmm. I would say it's not the norm to find single event deposits. They're usually palimpsests of lots of things that have happened over a period of time. Mm-hmm. So um, in the sites that I'm, I've been working on, these Appalachian Spanish mission sites, that's one of the things that I'm looking for are, are the markers of the religious traditions that the Spanish brought with them, because these are very specific Catholic communities. That's what, how they were established. Um, Many of them were not established like on top of pre-existing towns like you have maybe in Mesoamerica. Um, these are Franciscan friars coming in and bringing indigenous peoples together into a new area, establishing these new customs. Huh. And so one thing I've been doing, which is what takes me beyond just looking at animal remains, is looking at, for instance, old cookbooks, like Spanish cookbooks from the 15 and 1600s. Um, or at least looking at the translations of them. I, I'm, I'm barely proficient in Spanish, so reading very old Spanish is not my, my area, but I have colleagues that do that and translate these things, and so I can look at their translations. That's so um, cool. It's pretty fun, actually, some of the, some of the stuff um, that, that's out there. And um, also looking at the religious calendar and the rules for the types of foods that could and could not be eaten at that time, because things have changed in the Catholic Church mm-hmm. subtly over the last few hundred of years. So um, those are things that I've been looking at and and where we know that there are days where you cannot eat meat, right? There, in the Catholic Church, they have abstinence from meat days. That doesn't mm-hmm. mean you can have like beef broth or chicken broth, because that wasn't technically meat. Hmm. Oh, interesting. Right? Very interesting. Um, so, okay, what does that mean in terms of zooarchaeology? Well, then that means that animal bones, carcasses, were being processed for things other than just meat. Can we find evidence of that? Um, and so that is something that, that I'm looking into. I'm, I mean, I'm very excited for this pro- these projects, actually, there's multiple sites that I'm, I'm working on. Um, of course, it's difficult because the preservation in Tallahassee is just terrible in terms of... Uh, bones the, the soils here are very clay and acidic and so oh, we have okay. to look in really specific areas of sites i can for, only so. imagine what what are some of the um environments that you've seen in florida that do have or would have uh, good preservation for that type of 
um, archaeology. So, so for looking for foodways data, and you know there are multiple categories, right, for foodways data. So if we're looking at just for faunal material, shell midden sites or shell mounds or shell bearing sites, great faunal preservation because the the um, calcium in the shell neutralizes the soil. And now we don't have any of those from the Spanish colonial period, at least not in Tallahassee, but okay. we do have those from other time periods. And, and I've worked at, at some sites, multiple sites actually um, in this area from other time periods. And, and you know, the faunal preservation is just like a zooarchaeologist's dream. You know, big bones, lots of them, <laughs> small bones, lots of them. It's great. Nice. Um, yeah, lovely. In terms of faunal preservation for the Spanish colonial period, uh, I know in St. Augustine, they have excavated wells. And so these are wells that are dug eh, probably like, well, to, to the water table. So they could be anywhere from like six feet to eight feet, maybe a little deeper if necessary. And then barrel, wooden barrels were put down into the, the hole, like with the bottoms cut out, to basically be enclosures so that the water would stay flowing upwards and not leak, seep out into the surrounding ground. And um, I was just re-looking at an article that Elizabeth Wrights wrote about faunal analysis of some of this well that, that was excavated in St. Augustine. And it's just really fascinating. Um, the excavation that took place to, to recover these materials from this well and that the preservation was really pretty great, all things considered for that time period. Now here in Tallahassee, we have not recovered any wells like that. We've not identified any. Um, but I will say that the majority of the work on the period, the sites from this period, the Spanish colonial period, which is we're roughly talking like 1633 to 1704 is the hard end date. Um, there is, most of the work has been on identifying sites in the large structures at sites. So things like churches, gotcha. uh, the convento at San Luis de Talimali, which was the capital, the Western capital of Spanish Florida. They were. They also had a fort that was built there. There are a number of um, Spanish residential structures, and then a very large Appalachian council house. So all of that work was focused on architectural features and kind of site layout, which is super important. And it's for me, it's a great foundation that that work has been done. But that meant that they weren't focused on looking for foodways data, right? Because that was less, yeah. less the focus. So. Um, there have been some big pit features uncovered that were backfilled with a lot of trash that have, have had better preservation. And so some of those have been excavated and some of the material has been analyzed. And um, I excavated a portion of one in 2018 and, and all things considered the preservation was really good. So we're finishing nice. up the analysis of that. So yeah, I'm looking forward to that. And then the next night I work at, we're hoping to find some more of those types of features. Right. So I'd like to go back and touch on something you said um, probably a couple minutes ago now, but you mentioned the, the different kind of food restrictions around the religious calendar, which got me thinking about even if bones are being used to make um, broth, which would have been allowed, and the preservation may not be good enough for this, but have you seen any sort of changes in the stratigraphy where there are some areas um, or some portions of the stratigraphy that you find, for example, more fish bones, because I know a lot of the days that you're not allowed to have meat, you can have fish. That's a great question. That is something, right, that I'm definitely interested in exploring. Um, it seems that, I, 
in terms of deposition of, um, well, first of all, these sites, again, they're, they're newly created communities, not on previous sites. For sure, like San Luis de Talimali, we know there was not an Apalachee village there first. Like they specifically chose to put the community on that area because it was basically like neutral ground mm-hmm. um, in terms of nothing having been there prior from the Appalachians. So in terms of deposition and, and stratigraphic changes in um, food remains, we have not seen that only because we we just, I don't know, those sites are not, not occupied that long. It's less than 80 years at San okay. Luis. And gotcha. um, everything is just dumped into pits. And so that's another thing that I'm interested in is, is looking at the ideas of the social norms around the de- the deposition of food waste. Like, what did the Spanish think was the right way to get rid of food waste and other trash? And what did the Appalachians think was the right way to get rid of food waste and trash? Because I don't think at first they were the same. <laughs> I yeah. think it changes, right? And it probably becomes more Spanish-like. Also, at, at San Luis, we have an increase in the Spanish population there over time. So um, that will definitely drive how how and where to, to look for these types of things. Well, that's really cool. Are you able to, um, this might be going too far down the rabbit hole. Um, so just with like disposal um, mechanisms, are there any ways of seeing a unique overlap in food ways where something that was distinctly um, Appalachian or distinctly Spanish then kind of coming together because they're living in the same community that we're seeing like you're seeing all of a sudden the Spanish are starting to eat something they wouldn't have had otherwise or vice versa yeah so okay and thinking about changes in deposition or discard I guess of food waste um, I have to say that in terms of the Appalachian around like what their food waste process looked like immediately prior to Spanish colonization we don't know there's a lot of those sites have not been excavated and there's been so much urban development in Tallahassee that we probably will have lost a lot of those sites. Yeah. Um, and plus there's the preservation issue. So if you, we move a little further back in time, looking at um, Mississippian period food disposal patterns, which is, you know, the, the um, what we call the Native American period prior to European contact that ends in the 1400s. For the most part at, at sites that I've looked at, um, you know, they're usually either sheet middens where the waste is deposited, um, or it's it's put into pits as well. Like you backfill pits mm-hmm. with, with waste because you don't want big gaping holes, you know, around your community. That's just a death trap for children and small animals kind of thing. Yeah. Um, so, or maybe it's a playground for small children. Sometimes I think my children would like to play in <laughs> pits where they can make mud pies. Um, <laughs> But in terms of um, looking at, you had mentioned something about looking at um, like foods that that maybe the Spanish would adopt from the indigenous people and vice versa. That for sure we've seen um, happening. That happened in the in during that period um, pretty clearly, where the Spanish wanted to keep their traditional food ways, like they wanted to eat their traditional foods, but because they had to become self-sustaining communities here in, in Appalachian province, the any kind of uh, rations or um, imports from St. Augustine even were very few and far in between. And so 
they did things like they brought cows with them and they and there were some Spaniards that um, developed large cattle ranches. So there's a lot of beef that was eaten here in, in Appalachian province that was not eaten in St. Augustine. They didn't have the same access to it. Mm. Um, there's an, there is, you know, fish that's being eaten. It seems like at least in St. Augustine, the Spaniards were eating larger fish than the indigenous populations and the and the record for the indigenous populations of fish eating goes back hundreds and thousands of years and they're all you know it's very consistent what they were eating and then the spaniards came in and they were eating bigger fish like mullet they started eating a lot of mullet and big mullet and mullet can get pretty hefty in terms of fish size or the spaniards were eating fish that were caught in deeper ocean waters versus things that could be caught in the estuaries um some of that may have been, you know, bringing their their fishing technologies with them from places in Spain because, you know, where they may have come from in Spain may have been coastal kind of deep water, Atlantic Ocean. Yeah. And that's how they knew how to fish. Or maybe they learned how, they were sailors and they knew how to learn how to fish on boats, which would be hook and line kind of deep water stuff. So it's lots of questions, not enough time to answer them all. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but it is interesting to look at how food ways change out of necessity when people transplant themselves geographically, mm. just mm. because things that might grow in Spain won't necessarily grow in the southeast of the U.S. Um, and vice yeah, versa. Exactly. So, you know, are there recipes that, and this might be something that you've seen in some of the the older cookbooks, um, that, for example, have like handwritten notes in them where they've been like scratched out and they've said, oh, well, like we can't get X here, but you can sub in this amount of Y to do something similar. Um, I would love to see that cookbook. <laughs> I would love to see that. <laughs> handwritten notes in it. Um, so, you know, the the book that I'm thinking of is, is was written by Juan Altamiras and he was a Franciscan friar. I think it was written in the 1500s. Um, and it's been probably been updated by other individuals since then it's one of those like cookbooks that has almost a life of its own after he wrote it down it then went on to I think to be added on by other individuals but I've not seen that kind of um, individual notation I would love to I I imagine that many people just had recipes in their heads mm-hmm. and that a lot of the cookbook cookbooks from that time period were written for people that had to cook for more than their family yeah. So where I have my own, I have my own personal collection of cookbooks, right. That I use for my family. Mm-hmm. Um, but some of the recipes in these books, you know, would have you making you know, like cookies for, you know, a hundred people or something. And so clearly it's, it's, you know, for a banquet hall or visiting dignitaries or something. Um, yeah. Now I will say in these, the, some of the recipes that I've read, they do incorporate things like Turkey, which is, uh, oh. you know, indigenous to the Americas. That's cool. Um, it is pretty cool. And, and I actually just, my, the library at my university just had this great, um, thing going on in November. It was called the great rare books bake off. And it was very, it was very cool. Um, they picked a different type of recipe for every week. So one week was appetizers another was, you know, main dishes or side dishes. And, and I, um, was in it for the dessert week and, and they had a whole blog series going about it and you could choose recipes from any of the rare historic cookbooks in the special collections at our library or anywhere, you know, any kind of historic cookbook. So I actually chose a recipe 
from, well, I tried to get it from the Altamiris book, but I had a hard time finding a dessert recipe that sounded um, desserty, like something that was more like rice pudding type stuff. And mm-hmm. I'm sorry for all those people that love rice pudding, but to me, it's not really like dessert enough. Oh, my um, husband's Portuguese. The desserts tend to be very, like either very eggy or very, yeah, lots of rice. Yeah. yeah, <laughs> well, from, yeah. from a couple hundred years ago, you definitely have different ingredients that are available. Um, we are unfortunately at the end of this segment, but I really want to hear the end of this story. Yes. So after the break, we'll come back and talk about making food from recipes that are hundreds of years old. And that we need a new Netflix series. Right? Yes. <laughs> that would be fantastic. I would volunteer to host that series. <laughs> Looking for other archaeology podcasts? There are so many to choose from. Why not try Fantasies and bust myths surrounding ancient finds and people? Or learn about the study of animal bones and archaeanimals? There's also the great Go Dig a Hole and the Ark and Anth podcasts. Don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe to the Women in Archaeology podcast and all of these fun archaeology podcasts that are available on iTunes, Spotify, all over the place. Thanks for listening. Welcome back to the Women in Archaeology podcast. On today's episode, we've been joined by Tanya Perez, and so far we've been talking a little bit about her work with foodways in the southeastern portion of the United States. And as we ended the last segment, we were talking about doing some experimental archaeology through baking uh, historic recipes. And Tanya, I think you said you were making a dessert and struggling to find a dessert that was desserty enough. Yeah. Do you want to fill us in on the rest of that story? Sure. So, um, yeah, I wanted something that was desserty enough, right, for this great rare books bake off because I knew I was going to have to eat it at least a little bit. And I was going to make it, my kids would want to eat it. So I wanted something that wouldn't go to waste. I also wanted something that had to, uh, that had an ingredient from the Americas, right? If it was a historic recipe, I wanted it to not just be, you know, sugar and butter and flour. Um, and after looking through the, the translated version of Altamira's cookbook, the Nuevo Arte de Cocina, and all, all I was finding was, you know, some kind of rice pudding-y type dish or apples, baked apples, which um, is not exciting enough. I, <laughs> I actually, sorry for those people that love baked apples. Um, I reached out to, to one of my colleagues at the University of West Florida, uh, John Worth, who is a historical archaeologist and translates um, Spanish documents from the 15th through 17th centuries. And I know that he has lots of documents translated that, that he hasn't published the translations because there's not enough time in the day. Mm-hmm. So I contacted him and, and, you know, said, here are my requirements. Can't be ingredients that are super difficult to find. It has to be tasty and has to have at least one ingredient indigenous to the Americas. Can you help me out? And, That's a great uh, list. <laughs> yeah, that actually would be like a fun like you said we should have a Netflix show and then yes there you go you can have these little challenges right I already see um, a zoom um video chat where it's like we do this digitally and just like okay <laughs> who's like gonna it. be Paul who's gonna be Prue <laughs> <laughs> I like it very much uh, I think we'd have a lot of volunteers yeah, <laughs> yes. uh, so he was kind enough to actually go through and find recipes and then translate them for me. And he went through, um, there's a cookbook by Juan de la Mata. It's called Arte de Costa Rica. I'm sure I'm saying that wrong. 
but it's a recipe for biscochos, and it's I think the original recipe is called biscochos de Savoya, and um, this is from around 1755. So a little more recent than the Spanish colonial stuff I work on, but not too much. If it's written down, it was around before 1755. Mm-hmm. Um, and in my blog post, it it lists out the entire recipe, and I remember reading it, and I was like, is this for real? Like eight egg whites, and then a pound of sugar. Um, <laughs> which you then had to like push through a sieve and dry in a drying rack. And it was just all these crazy things that I was like, well, sounds interesting. Um, has pork lard in it. I don't know. It was, it was getting to be a bit much. <laughs> so I was like, okay, the uh, you know, is, is a popular recipe still. Um, so I did some, of course, Google searching and um, found a recipe that was more modern version of chocolate biscochos. And then I, I updated it even more just using stuff that I had in my house. Plus, I wanted to add things like cinnamon to it, um, which the original didn't call for. So so I ended up making you know a modified version, and I, I included the recipe on the blog post. And um, it turned out, well, I cooked it as a bread, like in a loaf pan instead of as cookies. And it was, mm-hmm. it was very good. I used um, um, chocolate chips that were sweetened with stevia that my husband brought home. I don't know. They were fine. They didn't taste very different. Um, but it was clearly very different from the original recipe, which which was uh, more, bis- you know, biscochos than we could handle at my house. So it was fun. It was a very fun experiment. And um, and I would you know definitely like to do more of those. I think those are the kinds of things we should do. We should revisit some of these old recipes to see um, how cooking has changed given the modern convenience of the, the kitchen equipment that we have. That's what? really interesting. I do wonder, I mean, considering that kind of recipe, they would have had probably even further back have had a lot of those ingredients somewhat readily available, like sugar, maybe. I mean, I think some of them, but I'm just brought to mind, like watching the very first season of the great British bake off. <laughs> when they, they actually traveled around to different estates rather than just being at one um, and talked to, uh, you know, historians and curators at museums um, and chefs about old recipes. And they made a traditional English pudding from like the 1600s. Mm-hmm. It didn't have any sugar in it. It was like flour and lard and was apparently very dense and stodgy. Um, and even if some of these ingredients were available, mm-hmm. you know, and moving into the 1700s, 1800s, like, yes, people could get sugar, but who could get sugar? You know, like, was that an mm-hmm. everyday common ingredient? Yeah. Was it something we were just seeing among you know, wealth, the wealthier class um, and how that kind of interplays? Yeah, that's that's a good point. I mean, and there are other types of sweeteners besides sugar and True, any... Yeah. Any you know experienced cook knows how to substitute in things like honey for sugars. Mm-hmm. And um, with I know specifically with like the Franciscans, they tended to have their own gardens. And um, you know this I'm thinking like the Franciscans over in Spain or Italy, um, maybe even had raised their own honeybees. Um, mm-hmm. I'm trying to think when I uh, visited Assisi in 2007, and I I feel fairly certain if I can remember that far, you know, that far back in time that we visited um, a, a monastery outside of Assisi that had a very thriving um, honeybee 
well, colonies, I guess, multiple, and they sold uh, bottled honey there. And it was one of those, like, it was a long time tradition for them. So, you know, honey is, is more or less easily substituted for sugar. If you can't get sugar, then there are other things that maybe you could sub in for it. Well, and it makes me a little bit curious. Um, in the last segment, we talked a little bit about like availability of things in the Americas that weren't available in Europe and vice versa. I w- would be curious, and granted this would be in Florida, so it's a significant distance still, um, but depending on the trade networks that might have been in place, would maple sugar or maple syrup have been available? Oh. Yeah, that's a good question because the maple syrup comes from so far north. I don't know because Spain really was didn't go, you know, they stayed in the southeast. They didn't really push further north. They were trying to get, I think, back to the Gulf Coast. Like they were trying to stay on the Gulf Coast more or less because mm-hmm. they were looking for gold and whatnot. Um yeah, I, I was trying to think if there were other types of things that could be used as sweetener. I mean, wine can be sweet. And, mm-hmm. and so you do see recipes like, you know, apples stewed in wine, which mm-hmm. would have brought out their sweetness. Or even uh, fruits themselves mm-hmm. at the height of, height of ripeness can be very sweet. And so you might incorporate uh, fruit, mashed fruits or something into a dessert. Yeah, like um, dates is something that's popularly used yeah. today for people that can't have cane sugar um, coconut sugar, obviously these are things that wouldn't have been available then, but it does make you wonder a little bit about like what fruits would have been that sweet locally, uh, that could have been an easy go-to or uh, thought of as possible substitute mm-hmm. by the Franciscans. And some of that depends on how flexible they may have seen their, <laughs> their foods. Um, cause depending on the era in, you know, in, Obviously, the European culture, certain things were seen as accessible or as acceptable um, to bring into the European diet, whereas other things later or in other areas may not have been. Um, And obviously, good examples of that are all of the indigenous American foods that were Mm -hmm. exported to Europe, and you mentioned Turkey earlier, um, as one of those, but as like with Western expansion, you know, the U S moved westward, most indigenous foods that were newly encountered during that period were not seen as acceptable foods. And it's a very different, um, way that they would or wouldn't incorporate things versus like you get off a boat and you have been eating the same food or mm-hmm. flour or rations for months, you know, anything. Oh yeah. <laughs> Look appetizing. And on that front, it, it kind of makes me wonder about just like the perception of sugar and the perception of sweetness. Obviously mm-hmm. in the world today, sugar is added to everything. You look at ingredients, lists of things that you would never in a million years expect to have sugar in it. And like, there, there it is, you know, high fructose corn sugar, syrup or um, cane sugar or beet sugar, whatever it is. Um, but I remember, for example, I was doing some archaeology on a boat. So we did not have ready um, access to a shop sometime for, you know, a couple of weeks on end. And when we did have access to a shop, we were more concerned about making sure that there were like good nutritious staples mm-hmm. that would keep us going through long 
long days in the field. So for two and a half months, I didn't eat hardly any um, condensed sugar, like not candy bars, not ice cream, um, no soda, that sort of thing. And when I came back from that trip, I was like, oh yeah, like I haven't had any Ben and Jerry's in a while. Like I'm going to have some cookie dough ice cream. I remember taking a bite of it and just being like, what am I eating? That is so (laughs) sweet. Mm -hmm. Um, So just, just modern perceptions and modern preoccupation with sugar and with sweetness. Um, Is it, would it have been that important, I guess? Yeah, that's a, that's a good question. I mean, I, I think of sugar as being something that is in very small quantities kind of necessary for humans, right? Like we, we do need sweetness in our life, in, in our diets for some, you know, and sometimes not all the time. So yeah, mm-hmm. I don't know. I don't know. It's a good question because um, I know in the um, ethno-historic documents of European uh, men that kind of explored or wandered around the Southeastern U.S. and took notes on what indigenous peoples were eating, they found indigenous food to be sour and, um, and not, not always to their liking. And a a lot of that had to do with, you know, the use of maize here in the indigenous Southeast. Mm -hmm. And that just like in in Mexico and other places that relied heavily on maize um, for their subsistence, it's, you know, mixed with um, uh, like ash or uh is it lime or something thank you i want to say lye which is soap so that's not that. yeah, no. but yeah, <laughs> like, a, like a wood ash or something to help help make it uh, to help break it down so that it's it's nutrients are bioavailable yeah and that that can make the porridges um that are made out of this mixed maize then sour tasting and so i think when the Europeans adopted corn, they you know they turned the name into corn instead of maize. When they adopted corn into their diets, that they kind of dropped that part mm-hmm. of the food way and and the processing of it um, because it wasn't to their maybe their liking taste wise. But of course, then it it turned into a, a very terrible public health situation because then oh, yeah. there was widespread pellagra everywhere because of it. <laughs> Just so, for yeah, our I mean, listeners, what is pellagra? Uh, pellagra is, it's a, let's see, it's a deficiency, I think, in, I want to say it's niacin. Um, and I have to look up the exact, uh, vitamin and mineral that, that you end up being deficient in. But if you have a diet that is heavily relied on things like corn and not fresh fruits and meats or even like milk or something, which is what a lot of poor, uh, farmers in Europe and, and even here in the United States in like the 1920s and 1910s, um, relied upon that you're, you get this terrible disease or sickness, which, you know, it starts off with like diarrhea and you can't eat your, um, your skin becomes like kind of scaly and, you know, eventually you can die from it. Hmm. It's a very, very nasty, uh, disease to have. Yeah. It does not sound pleasant. No. It's like sprinkle yeah. some ash in there. Come on, guys. <laughs> or yeah, right. It's like or drink it with fresh milk or something. You know, something yes. that's fresh. Yeah. Hmm. I am wondering. Um, so, with this, the experience you had with the one recipe, are there any other recipes you've seen in your studies and whatnot, um, either from um, indigenous cultures or from the Spanish? They're like, I really want to give that a try. Um, 
Yeah, so I teach a class on foodways archaeology, and the last few times I've taught it, I have taught it uh, based on Spanish colonial period recipes, because we have more of those than we do of the indigenous recipes. So Mm -hmm. I do include indigenous recipes sometimes, but usually we focus on Spanish recipes. But during the class, the students um, choose a a historic recipe from a list that I provide, and they have to research all of the ingredients and and write a paper on it, and they have to cook the dish. And then in um, normal times, right, when we're not in the middle of a pandemic, they they tend they will bring the dish either to the class if it's during the spring semester or summer semester or if we're in the fall semester uh, we time it so that they will make the dish and bring it to our department's annual pig roast that we have every year nice. and um, oh, wow. and so we have a whole table of these you know historic spanish dishes and it's it's kind of become a thing that people are you know look forward to if if they know I'm teaching the class and so we can sample you know different kinds of of recipes, um, maybe based on, sometimes they're based on indigenous, uh, ingredients to the Americas, like squash, so like a butternut squash dish or something. And, and I've had the apples with red wine ragu that's in the, the, uh, Altamir's cookbook that I didn't want to make for the great, you know, rare books bake off and they're fine. It's fine. It's not my favorite thing, but you know, it's always interesting to, to try these different recipes out. And it's such great teaching practice. Um, I did a similar thing for a classics class that I took in undergrad. And I remember that um, recipe and I remember kind of the sensory experience of cooking it and what it smelled like. And it smelled great. And then it came out of the oven and it sat for 30 minutes and it turned into a brick. You had to soak it in time to not break your teeth off. Um, but But I have these strong visceral like emotive memories associated with that. And it's such a great teaching practice to get your students or yourselves, if you're exploring a new topic, to to experience it in a different way, to engage in, in a, like a more organic human way than, than just reading a book. Um, mm-hmm. So that's really amazing. That's an assignment that you give to your students. Thanks. Yeah, it's it's definitely, you know, it's favorite. I It's really fun. Um, I even will make something like I'll wait till the students choose from the list and then I'll look at what's left over. And the last time we did it was in fall of 2019 and I made a, um, a Spanish torta, you know, like an egg and potato mm-hmm. um, yeah. dish. Oh, gosh, it was so good. And it was, it was the first time I'd made one in a cast iron skillet, you know, the, the real way of doing it, not cheating in a pan or something and baking it in the oven. (laughs) And it was, it was amazingly delicious. And it it went, it was very popular at the pig roast and it went very fast. So um, I've made it several times since then just to eat, you know, it's like, oh, wow, look, I found a new recipe because my family will eat it. So I'll make it. I've definitely had personal obsessions with uh, historic cooking blogs and, um, YouTube channels and stuff that will kind of look into this a number of years ago. I can't remember the name of the blog. Um, there was a woman who, um, took some of the early, uh, like 19th century Victorian cookbooks from the U S and tried to duplicate the process, not just the, the recipes themselves, but also because of, as you mentioned, um, sort of your introduction, how, cooking was done is so significantly different. Um, like how that 
that can affect the flavor and um, also just the, the process itself. It's hard to follow a recipe that's cooking something over an open fire or in a, you know, cauldron in a fire um, on your electric stove. You know. Right. And and also, I mean, the idea of, of, you know, we have three meals a day and we might cook mm-hmm. for two of them or maybe all three of them now that we're home all the time. Um, and that's, that's something to think about, too. I don't think cooks in the past cooked separate meals three times a day. Oh, yeah. Um, you know, I, I think there was more of a like, here, I'm going to make this big pot of stew and it's going to stay warm on the fire and you can come get some when you're hungry kind of thing. Yeah. Um, and and on, the, you know, the idea of we have electric stoves or I mean, I have a gas stove and oven, but it's still electrically lit and I don't have to make a, you know, a fire in my oven when I want to cook something. But I did tell my husband after I made the, the scotchos recipe that I wanted him to um, build an Orno in my backyard, which, you know, is an outdoor oven. Yeah. <laughs> that he was kind of looked at me sideways and was like, sure. <laughs> <laughs> that would so, be. Yeah. <laughs> Well, uh, cross your fingers that you end up with an outdoor oven. Um, and that does bring us to the end of our second segment. This has been a super fascinating conversation on experimental archaeology and cooking. <laughs> so stay tuned for the fun conversation. And we'll continue in the next segment. Did you know that we have a blog? Check out the Women in Archaeology website for a variety of blog posts, as well as past episodes. Interested in supporting the podcast? From the website, you can check out our Patreon account and learn about the different ways to help support the blog and podcast. We can give you a cool sticker in return. Again, thank you for listening. Hi, everyone, and welcome back to the Women in Archaeology podcast. In the last segment, we were talking a little bit about some experimental archaeology and recipes from historic sources that we like making. And as the last 40 minutes or so should tell you, there's obviously tons of scope to do some super, super interesting research looking at foodways. And I understand, Tanya, that you are now working for the University of Alabama Press or an editor for them, and you're looking for book submissions? Yes. So I am um, a new series editor for the University of Alabama Press. So not working for the university, just an editor for there. Their press series, um, and the series is called Archaeology of Food. And um, my book, Baking Bourbon and Black Drink, which I co-edited with Aaron Dieter Wolf of the Tennessee Division of Archaeology, was the first book published in that series. And uh, three additional books have been published in there: Feeding Cahokia, one about salt in Eastern North America, and another that's a more global view of the uh, food in the human past. And then I know there are a number of books in the pipeline in various stages of, of you know, publication, but we are currently looking for people to submit their book ideas and book proposals for the series. Um, and they can reach out to me via email about that and we can talk. And if they're not sure what a book proposal you know, needs to include, I'm very happy to answer any questions about that. Um, and it's, it's very exciting to have a series dedicated to, you know, the archaeology of food and, and the different ways that we, we can think of, you know, food in the past um, and how archaeology intersects with it. So it's, you know, it's not limited to, to just one kind of food or one time period or the southeastern U.S. is uh, meant to be a global series. Very nice. That's a, yeah, that sounds amazing. I'm looking forward to reading those books as they come out. <laughs> yeah, me too. I can't wait. I mean, I'm, I'm, I know there are people out there, and hopefully, people that are listening, 
um, to this podcast that that have some ideas they want to share with us. So I'd be happy to read them. Awesome. Nice. Um, that sounds fabulous. I do think for this last segment, we are going to shift a little bit to talk about you know, food and the holidays and also just kind of things that are going on with COVID. I know a lot of people traveled for Thanksgiving in the U.S. And I know here in the U.K., we're, we've been given a, a five-day window um, to travel over the Christmas period to see family. Um, but there is concern, and I think it's justifiable, about COVID cases rising and spikes that can be seen from families getting together mm-hmm. over the holiday. Um, and obviously, this has been a super hard year for everyone. Um, it's It's been nine nine months, but it feels like an absolute age. And we still want to feel like we're together at the holidays. And food is a great way to do that. So I don't know, um, Tanya, do you want to just jump in really quickly about kind of some of the ways that food is culturally important um, and what it means to, to people? Yeah, I mean, I think that, that um, you know, food allows us to share connections with family members, of course, but also ancestors, right? People from our past. We like cooking things the way our grandmother, great-grandmother, grandfather, great-uncle or somebody did it. Um, and that's that's part of our story. And it's part of the story we share with, you know, our partners and our children. And um, and it's, it's just a shared part of humanity. And even if we have recipes that aren't written down, they're in our head and they were told to us by, you know, an elder or someone in our family that... Um, that allows us to carry on that tradition. It is a pretty neat way to be, to be connected because it's, you know, the recipe itself. So all of the ingredients and directions, and then it's the actual doing of the recipe and then the eating of the recipe. So there's a lot of connection on multiple levels there. Yeah, definitely. Well, and I know I mentioned previously that I woke up very early to buy this Norwegian flatbread um, because it's super time intensive and you need like a giant griddle to make these flatbreads on. And I just don't have the space in my very small flat. Um, but the recipe that I was talking about is one that, that's, you know, make as you can and to taste, there aren't really measurements. Um, and it's something that came over from Norway um, when my family emigrated to the US in the 1800s. So it's the same recipe that generations of people in my family have made. Um, and there's a lot of connection there. Um, and that, you know, it's nice to know at the Christmas time that, um, you know, my parents are probably going to be making it. My sister's probably going to be making it. And even though I live 3,000 miles away from from one of them and 6,000 miles away from the other, um, it still makes us feel like we're together. Yeah. I mean, that's so true. Even in non-COVID times, right? We can't always be with all of our family members, but we can still have some kind of shared experience through those family recipes. Um, We do, you know, similar things in in my family, like at Thanksgiving, especially I'm thinking of my sister and I uh, both love to cook and we, we love to host Thanksgiving and we take turns, but she lives in Tennessee and I live in Florida. So it's not always possible to be together. Um, and so when we're not together, we talk on the phone, you know, the, you know, leading up to Thanksgiving about our shopping experiences and what is our menu. Like we have a menu that we each come up with and 
We even have a, a shared Pinterest board about you know new recipe ideas. I love that. And it's it's really yeah we it's a private one so we can really just put our you know things that we particularly like on there. And um, and then we realized like once we had small children around us that talking on the phone and trying to cook always meant that then the small children would come find us, right? So it made it more difficult to talk on the phone. So we started texting. We do a lot of texting of, you know, what time does the turkey need to go in the oven? If I'm trying to eat it this, you know, at four o'clock and this big of a turkey. And we have this whole like method of cooking a turkey in a brown paper bag that um, mm-hmm. that she shared with me a number like 10, I don't know, probably more like 15 or 16 years ago now. And, um, and yes, I did say I don't eat meat, but I still cook the turkey at my house every year. And it's perfect every time. Of course. Um, <laughs> because of the recipe that she gave me. But then I have to make, like she makes her own kind of stuffing and I make the stuffing recipe the way my husband's mom makes it because that's what he always liked and it's a good recipe. So um, I make that recipe, but with my own little spin on it so that instead of having like a casserole dish of stuffing, um, his mom always rolled it into balls, like oh. slightly larger than a, than a meatball or something. But then I found that it took up too much space in my oven trying to finish up all the different dishes. So I started putting them in muffin tins. I have, um, like cupcake pans that are just six cupcakes oh, really? at a time yeah. and I can make them in my toaster oven. <laughs> Oh, that's so cool. <laughs> While everything else is cooking in the oven. So um, so we call them stuffin' muffins. And, <laughs> and, and they're good. They're so good. I like want some right now. Um, and the cranberry sauce recipe that I make, um, I got that out of a magazine a number of years ago. But now my sister and my mother-in-law make it. And so every year my mother-in-law texts me like, what's the recipe again? And I'm like, oh, it's just, you know, one bag of cranberries to one cup of sugar to one cup of apple cider. Like, super easy, but you know, we always want to make sure we get it right. So I look forward to the, that kind of interaction every year because it's, it's, um, I don't know, it's fun. And it's like, those, that's what we talk about at that time every year, those kinds of recipes. It's pretty fun. Yes. That's really cool. Um, to jump in, I guess. So the opposite end of the spectrum of, uh, Norwegian flatbreads and these wonderful sounding turkeys and stuff and muffins, I'm, from a very Midwestern family, so it's all about the casserole. Yeah. Is it hot dish? Isn't that what they call it in Minnesota, hot dish? In Minnesota, but I'm from Ohio. Oh, so, okay. So it's a casserole. Uh, <laughs> and uh, our big thing on Christmas, and it's hilarious because my brother and I both insist on making it even when we're apart and it's, it is that kind of like communal things. We know my mom's going to have it and my brother's going to have it and I'm going to have it. And my brother's wife and my husband think it's like the weirdest thing. But so you chop up a whole bunch of white bread and you cube it and let it go stale. And then (laughs) you pour a cup of um, cream of mushroom soup cup of milk over all of that then you whip up a whole bunch of eggs pour that on top of that then you slice up a whole bunch bunch of bean those little beanie weenies you know little miniature bosses <laughs> cut those up throw it on and then literally add like a pound of shredded cheddar bake it you've got christmas morning breakfast wow <laughs> <That's fantastic>. <laughs> <laughs> Wow. So that's, oh, 
Oh, yeah. yeah. So it literally, I've had that probably every year since I was probably a toddler. Um, and it's like the standard. I remember it every year. And like a lot of other family members make it. My mom says she's been making it forever. And she can't even remember when she started making it. And then um, there's this recipe that more my aunts make it more than um, my family does. But I've made it a few times. And I really love this recipe. It's my great grandmother's cinnamon roll recipe. Oh. This is my great grandmother who um, was on a dairy farm in West Virginia and they were self-reliant and she apparently she's like she got up at 4 a.m. and started cooking and didn't go, you know, wasn't done until went to bed. And, you know, she made her own bread, her own cottage cheese, her own everything. And then she had a loom. And so wow. she made tons of fabric. She just sounded like a hardcore, hardworking lady. And so her cinnamon rolls are just amazing. It's just this very yeasty dough. I mean, it's just the best cinnamon rolls ever. So that that's it for me. But uh, there's not, it's just that like culture, that family where it's just like, yes, that's from West Virginia. This is from Ohio. This is from, that makes me yeah. feel very at home. When it doesn't have to be someone you're, you're blood related to, your cinnamon roll story um, reminded me, I haven't thought about this in years because I haven't had one of these cinnamon rolls since I went to university. Um, but I grew up in uh, like a little half circle that there were, uh, five houses on mm -hmm. and three of the houses had either young kids or kids who were just old enough to babysit. <laughs> so we, we formed a, a pretty tight relationship with, with my neighbors and we you know, the kids were constantly playing around the half circle together and, mm -hmm. uh, you know, in each other's houses and one of them had a backyard pool. So there were pool parties and like, it was as good place to grow up. But, um, one of the, the neighbors was, uh, was a Jewish family, but she knew Christmas was very important and that it was nice to have warm things Christmas morning, but that if we'd all been to, uh, you know, like midnight service, which uh, was a tradition in, in my family and in, in the other neighbors, that waking up super early in the morning to make cinnamon rolls or something was not necessarily the thing you wanted to do. So from my earliest Christmas memories until I went away to university, Every Christmas morning, she would wake up at four o'clock in the morning and make cinnamon pecan sticky rolls. Oh my god! For both of the families, and she would show up at nine thirty in the morning um, and leave an insulated dish on the porch so that if we weren't awake yet, she wasn't waking anybody up. Oh, um, fresh hot out of the oven, um, and I should I should contact and see if I can get that recipe. That's really Thanks for reminding me, Emily. <laughs> that's the, that is a lovely memory. Is really oh, that's neat. awesome. Oh, I want to be her neighbor. <laughs> yeah. She's a nice lady. Yes. All of the connections, and that's, I think, a really great way to bring the holidays home when you can't go home, I guess is the best way to put that, is, yeah. is mm -hmm. you know, recipes that, you are connected to through memory, uh, through ancestry. Um, earlier, um, I think it was actually uh, during one of the breaks, um, I had mentioned I was really excited that Tanya had made biscochos uh, yeah. as her uh, cookie choice uh, because I'd recently learned from a relative of mine um, I'd received a recipe of bizcochitos uh, from New Mexico, where my family's from. Um, and I still have family there, but I didn't really know them growing up. So learning and finding these connections to 
parts of my family that have been, I wouldn't say lost to me, but just distant um, and that I've been reconnecting with in the last couple of years is, is really a neat addition. And also Emily's bit as well about including aspects of her husband's family's meals and the way that those come together. Uh, And that's something that I know we have uh, some close friends that we won't be getting together with this year, obviously, uh, that usually come from Seattle down to Portland, and we will often have a big Christmas or Thanksgiving dinner. And uh, the funny thing is many of us have uh, severe either food allergies or other intolerances. Oh, so man. I end up, it's it's become my thing on a personal level to take these on as challenges to make like their favorite <laughs> childhood dishes oh. as something that they can actually eat. And the it's, it's super fun. So, you know, even if it's something that like, you find later that you can't have or, you know, your diet restricted to um, an example could even be like Christmas enchiladas um, or tamales and both of which have been a thing in the past occasionally in my family uh, and contain either tomato or or pepper sauce and anyone who has acid reflux may not be able to (laughs) so being creative with trying to form fit um these old memory recipes or even just contacting distant relatives or people that you haven't talked to in a long time to get the recipes Mm -hmm. um and that was one thing i appreciated Tanya, about what you were talking about with reaching out to family to have those conversations about like, what was that one thing that like you had to know on this recipe to get right? Uh, Yeah, I mean, it is, um, you know, definitely like, get those recipes while your family members are still around. mm -hmm. Um, I, I keep a I have multiple three ring binder notebooks of recipes that you know, that I've pulled out of magazines or friends have, you know, shared their family recipes with me or recipes from my own family members. And I've always wanted to put together like a family cookbook to give to my other family members. But um, the one I imagine in my head is super complicated. And so I not have time to do it. And I did try starting a, a um, family cookbook blog, like, you know, so I could post the recipes online for the family members to go find. But I apparently am the only person that uses it. So at least it's still there for me when I can't remember the the recipe for whatever it is that I'm trying to make. I can go find it. Nice. Um, the one thing I did want to say for for any of the the listeners that that don't feel that they're very good cooks or that they don't know how to cook, you know, you have to try. And all all cooks have started somewhere, right? With with very little knowledge of of how to do it. And really, in thinking back about um, my learning to cook, you know, my mom taught me how to cook some things and my grandmother taught me how to cook some things. But for the most part, I just did it. I just started cooking for myself. And uh, my brother and I lived together as roommates in college. And so we would cook together and try to recreate recipes from our grandmother or, um, or just come up with recipes that we liked, you know, we would perfect certain things. And that's what we became known for. And, um, and then, being exposed to other cultures' foods um, through my friends in college was a really cool experience. And I learned how to make additional dishes from, you know, their family members and, um, and reading cookbooks. I read cookbooks like a, you know, like a book. 
and yeah. um, or cooking magazines. You know, there are a lot of blogs and, and I still do get some recipes from blogs, but I have found that not all blog recipes are test, tested well enough that they're foolproof. True. And so if you're just starting out, I, I don't recommend getting random recipes off Pinterest um, because they're not for sure going to work. Like go to tried and true recipe um, websites or cookbooks um, or cooking shows on TV and, and try those out because that way you're, you're less likely to fail and then, you know, feel like you're, you don't want to try it again because sometimes you have to try recipes several mm -hmm. times before you get it just the way you want it. Yeah. So I will, I will throw out there. I have cooked is probably the wrong word, uh, but cooked <laughs> crunchy spaghetti before. So like, believe you me, just keep going. <laughs> I, I, regularly burn, I regularly burn spaghetti in my instant pot, but I keep trying because I'm going to figure out how to do it. <laughs> exactly. And so that, that does bring us to the end of our episode for today, but hopefully you've come up with some good ideas for how to still feel like we're together this holiday season, even when for you know the health of each other, it's really better that we stay physically separated. Um, it's always lovely to have everyone listen. Um, Emily, Tanya, and Kirsten, thank you so much for coming on. This has been a fabulous conversation. It's been so much fun. It's it has been, awesome. been a lot of fun. Thank Tanya, you. Tanya, thank you so much for coming. This has been a blast. Yes. If you are interested in coming on the show in 2021, um, or you have thoughts on this or any of our other shows, you can always reach out to us on Twitter at Women Archies or um, email us at womeninarchaeology at gmail.com. And you can also check out the blog. And I think if you keep a, a weather eye on the blog, you may see one or two recipes from the, the host pop up on the blog in the, in the coming weeks. So who wouldn't sure. want the recipe for it. the beanie weenie casserole? <laughs> I mean, who wouldn't? <laughs> Sounds fantastic. <laughs> <laughs> um, but on that note, happy holidays, happy new year, and let's all hope 2021 is a bit brighter. Woohoo! <laughs>